0: Welcome to Let the Stones Speak. I'm Brent Naktagal, your host here in Jerusalem, Israel. This is a podcast where we talk about the latest in biblical archaeology. And it has been a big week this past week for us in the the Armstrong Institute of Biblical Archaeology, putting out an extra edition of the Let the Stones Speak magazine. And it's really fortuitous that we, uh, the, the topics uh, that we chose for this new magazine, you uh, Really looking forward to something that's going to take place this week. We, of course, had our title uh, article about the discovery of an altar on Mount Ebal. And we talked about this at length with Professor or Dr. Scott Stripling a couple of weeks ago on the podcast. If you haven't listened to that, it would be a great um, bit of revision for you for the announcement that's going to come this week. We did our uh, issue on a couple of stories, and uh, one of them was the altar, and the other one is kind of a write-up, an edited write-up of the interview we did with um, uh, Dr. Stripling. And then just as we were going to press on on Friday, I received an announcement, uh, an email uh, from uh, one of Dr. Stripling's colleagues saying that this or oh, Thursday, there's going to be a big announcement about the decipherment of the Ebal inscription. Now, this is a little bit of background. I won't I won't go through it all again. But um, back in the 1980s, you had this site that was uh, excavated by Professor Adam Zutal of Haifa University. And he, this was um, a site on Mount Ebal, which is just overlooking uh, Shechem. And... Uh, what he discovered was a massive altar dated to around the the changeover late bronze iron one, early iron one period, and so he thought this was around twelve hundred and and this of when this altar was constructed really big altar three meters high seven meters by nine meters and then including a massive ramp going up to the altar as well. And what we talked about with uh, with Dr. Stripling was that there was an earlier altar that this big altar was built around, this circular altar. And Dr. Stripling dates that most likely to the period of the late 15th century when the Bible says that Joshua came into the promised land. And if you follow the biblical narrative, Joshua comes into the promised land. He takes over a couple of cities, Jericho, I, and then he's going to come up to this area that Moses told him to come up to. And half the tribes are going to be on, on Mount Gerizim, overlooking Shechem as well. And then the other half on Mount Ebal, and they're going to rehearse the blessings and cursings backwards and forwards. Just before they did that, though, the Bible says in Joshua chapter 8, that Joshua built an altar. And Dr. Stripling again believes that this circular altar, underneath Adam Zertal's big altar, um, of course Zertal excavated both of these. Uh, he believes that one's more likely the one from Joshua's time. Now, as we talked about back then uh, in in the program a couple of weeks ago, there was a a small tablet uh, that was that that was discovered when uh, Dr. Stripling sifted through the 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 dumps of Adam Zertal's excavations in the past few years. And this was a curse tablet, which by itself is amazing. You've got a curse tablet, folded bit of metal with writing on the inside uh, that's found on the curse mountain. And there was a, uh, a, a reading of, um, by, by an epigraphist, Gershon Galil, I think he's also with Haifa University, uh, an early reading just from the outside of it. And it looked like it said the word curse in some really early uh, ancient Hebrew, we'll put it that way, um, uh, writing. And uh, it was kind of shocking, I think, to, to Dr. Stripling that such a reading was, was uh, available uh, before all the scans had been done or just from a photograph. And so it looks like they sped up this process uh, to get it to the public and, and the, 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 the more thorough uh, scientific report of it. He said it might have, might be coming out in June or July. Turns out it's coming out in uh, March, just this Thursday. This is from Gershon Galil on Facebook. He said this, uh, March 18th, so two days ago. I'm happy to announce that the eBowl inscription was deciphered. It will be presented at a press conference next week, March 24th at 10 a.m. This is in Houston at the Lanier Theological Library in Houston, Texas, by Professor Scott Stripling, Professor Gershon Galil, and Dr. Peter van Der Veen. It will be streamed only for media but posted ASAP on the Associates for Biblical Research YouTube channel and so you can look to that we'll definitely have an article about this uh, perhaps just after uh, it go uh, after the announcements of course if you want to have more of a background, you'd need to request our magazine, Let the Stone Speak. This issue has two, has an article and then also a the interview write-up with, with Dr. Stripley and kind of condenses it in a way so that you can really understand what's being discovered. This has the potential to be the greatest archaeological find, I think, um, uh, <laughs> I'm not going to say in history, but it's up there, top five, biblical archaeological find. If you have a... a and a curse tablet. That's what they do have there. That's found in the dumps, and of the excavation of this tower. And if you have the word curse on it, and if it's in really, really early uh, ancient Hebrew or proto-Sinatic, whatever you want to call it, here in the land of Israel, predating any other uh, ancient Hebrew writing in Israel by a few hundred years or a couple hundred years. This is this is pretty big deal. Um, so it's early Hebrew writing, curse on Mount Mount Ebal, writing about a curse on Mount Ebal, and then perhaps even uh, the metal itself. Where did the lead? I think it is. Where did it come from? Can we trace that perhaps to somewhere on the journey of the Israelites uh, coming out of Egypt? And that would be a triple whammy, uh, I think, in 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 terms of significance. Uh, uh, so I don't want to overplay it. The announcement hasn't come out yet. I don't have any inside information. However, we'll see what happens this Thursday. And if you're listening to this after Thursday, which I believe, uh, would be something like the 25th of March, then check your news. Cause it'll be everywhere. <laughs> you, unless you were hiding under a rock, uh, you wouldn't have, you would have seen this story. So just a heads up for that. If you're listening to this before March 25th. Okay or uh, well, March 24th, I should say. Just a couple of other stories before I get into an article by uh, Andrew Lawler that he recently po- posted on in Scientific American. This is one r- which is a really interesting story related to the Siloam inscription. If you remember your biblical history, you know that uh, during the time of King Hezekiah uh, of Judah, you had the invasion into Judah of Sennacherib, the Assyrian king. And he's, he's coming down to Judah. He takes over a number of cities. He takes over uh, 46 cities, I believe he writes, on on the Sennacherib prison or the Taylor prison, as it could be called. And um, he takes over Lachish, the second biggest city in Judah or second major city in, in, in Judah behind Jerusalem. And then he turns his army on Jerusalem. And the Bible says that after Hezekiah repents and goes to Isaiah and, and Isaiah tells him what's going to happen, that God is going to save Jerusalem for David's sake and for Jerusalem's sake from 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. And directly before that though, there was is a tunnel that's cut through the bedrock that is going to bring the water from the Gihon spring which is down in the valley, the Kidron Valley, uh, just to the east of the ancient city, and that is going to be transported under the city through a tunnel to to a part that's inside the fortified walls at the South and West of the city of Jerusalem, right where the the Valley of Hinnom uh, meets the Kidron Valley. And uh, the Bible talks about this, of course, and then this was discovered. I think uh, Robinson might've even discovered, I'm not sure exactly, but this has been discovered for over a hundred and uh, over 150 years. And of course, Warren was in it as well. Warren shaft exists here in this tunnel network under the ground. And what, was um, written down, and how we know it's the time of King Hezekiah... Uh, that when this tunnel was built, we have the biblical reference, of course, to a conduit, or, or how he stopped the upper water, the upper water course of the Gihon spring, and brought it brought it inside the city. You also have the account uh, where it says that why should the Assyrian king come to Jerusalem and find much water? So let's take the water away from his army as it's going to besiege us. So you have the Bible talking about it, and then you have this amazing inscription that was carved into the the rock. Uh, of the right at the end of Hezekiah's tunnel. This is a 1,700 feet tunnel. That sometimes it's it's about four or five times my height right at the end, and other times I've got to really hunch over. I was in it actually two days ago with my with my children for the first time. My five year old and my uh, four year old and and even my one year old uh, was who was my wife was carrying. We went through it for their first time, and right at the end of it. You see a plaque there where there was an ancient inscription, the Siloam inscription, that details details how the the, the diggers from from 2,700 years ago constructed this tunnel from underground from both directions. Two teams digging, and, and it captures the moment that the two teams met. And you can see this moment uh, about a third of the way through Hezekiah's tunnel as well, when you can notice that the the pickaxes. Um, from go one way and then you see them go the other way and there's a little dip in the ceiling this is where they met and this inscription which is towards the end of hezekiah's tunnel it describes how it happened and it's in beautiful uh, ancient hebrew script uh from around 8th 7th century if a is going to date it but the problem is that this inscription isn't in israel it's not in the israeli museum now you would think it would be just because this is a dramatic discovery that details a biblical event that happens here in Jerusalem, but of course, when it was discovered, uh, this area did not belong to the state of Israel. The Ottomans were over Jerusalem, and so they uh, blew it out of the or took it out of the wall of Hezekiah's tunnel. And you can see a big uh, imprint where it was, and it's in the Istanbul Museum. And so Israel has wanted for so long to get this inscription and, and bring it back to to the uh, Israeli museum. But of course, uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan uh, isn't the most favored uh, uh, Turkish leader and, um, or doesn't really favor Israel. Although well, There might be a little bit of a turn that's happening there. Uh, and so it hasn't gone back there. And so we actually heard uh, from somebody um, in the know that it was going to come back. And this trip by uh, um, Isaac Herzog, the, uh, the leader of uh, the president of Israel, he had a visit to meet Erdogan. And this was one of the reasons for the visit, to bring this back. And and there was going to be a candelabra or something that was going to go to Turkey. Well, it turns out that I think it was uh, the Times of Israel's Hebrew um, sister site that broke a story saying that it was coming back. And I think it was coming back, and it might still come back. But unfortunately, it hadn't come back yet. And so they leaked this story. or the story comes out before it's even in Israeli hands, it seems. And it causes a major backlash, and you've got the Daily Sabah, which is a Turkish paper, which basically an Erdogan mouthpiece, saying that nope, not coming back. And so uh, we had a story ready to go. Christopher Eames wrote a story ready to go about it coming back, and we held off. We held off for precisely this reason: that it might not make it back. Because I don't know how it happened, but somebody got wind of it. Somebody publishes a story. And this is the thing that is going to not look that good, I think, for Erdogan or for some of for him some popular support for him amongst people of his own country. And so he played down it, said it wasn't going to happen. It may still happen, but nevertheless, uh, it's whoever did that. You should have just just kept it on the quiet until Israel had it in the Israeli museum. That would have been a good idea. But now we'll see how it's uh, whether it actually comes back or not. So that is another interesting story related to the Siloam inscription. We've been going for about 10 minutes or so, so we might just take a short break. And when we come back, I want to discuss an article in The Scientific American by Andrew Lawler, uh, the author of this book here, Under Jerusalem. Again, this is another book that you probably have heard quite a lot about. We've quoted it and talked about it a little bit. And if you've listened to other biblical archaeology podcasts, You would have seen perhaps Lawler being interviewed about this book, and we're going to go into just the most recent of his articles, which takes a lot of information from his book, and discuss some of the the good parts of it, and then also some of the parts that are are flagrantly uh, false. So stay with us. We'll be right back. Hello and welcome back to Let the Stones Speak. I want to go through this article now. It's by Andrew Lawler. He's a contributing writer for Science and a contributing editor for Archaeology. And he has this new book out. It's called Under Jerusalem, and it's by Andrew Lawler: The Buried History of the World's Most Contested City. And um, it's a beautifully laid-out book, well-written book. Uh, it's been sitting on my on my dresser for about 2 weeks I haven't I haven't started it although I've, I've skimmed through it um, to parts that refer to the uh, excavations mainly of Dr. Elot Mazar and just this period of modern Israeli archaeology in Jerusalem now there there if you haven't read it uh, I don't I can't necessarily recommend it at this point because because I haven't read it. I am very interested to get into it, uh, particularly the the early history of excavation in Jerusalem. I hear that that is the best part of the book. I know that he has put out several articles that are based on this book, and it's kind of been the reason why I've been a little bit hesitant to jump into it just because I've seen some of the ways he talks about, um, the more re- recent uh, excavations, and I think if you are interested in biblical archaeology, it's a great, it's a great um, bit of understanding to know that archaeology, the field of archaeology, has got its bias. Uh, both ways, especially when it ter- comes when it comes to terms with the Bible and how the Bible itself is used in archaeology and historical document or not, especially when you get into the question of funding of excavations and whether that impacts the scientific results of those excavations as well, and then how archaeological discoveries are reported in the press. He he correctly notes in this article that there is a kind of a culture war that is going on right now, and you know about this that pits conservative biblical values against progressive, as they're called, uh, uh, values. And the the field of archaeology has been locked into a, a battle over over the the authenticity of the Bible in terms of the early accounts. Let's go. Let's say just around King David, King Solomon's time, and and before. And certain archaeologists would believe that the Bible is an accurate historical source, for or largely accurate historical source for this period. And they really use the Bible in their archaeology, which means they help. They use the Bible to help interpret what they discover, because archaeology by itself, as a science, is incredibly limited. Uh, in in the information, in the story that can be told um, or the, the the values or why things happened uh, the way that they did in, in what you discover. Archaeology is the study of material remains. And so it's it's hard. You're, you are a detective trying to put all this information together, yet sometimes you can be dead wrong. Unless you have a historical source or a detective's account uh, to, or a, somebody, an eyewitness account to explain what happened or historical historical account to explain what happened. And then it really does make sense of what you discover. And different archaeologists fall, uh, put themselves in different places along the spectrum of using the Bible as a guide, even consulting the Bible to help you determine where the best place to dig or what you might be discovering, kind of anticipating discovery. And then you know, not even under, not even really reading the Bible, putting it to the side, and maybe uh, perhaps at the end of your excavation, consulting the text uh, to see how it matches or how it doesn't. Um, other archaeologists seem very free with their um, their uh, inferences in whether some what they discover proves the Bible or not, without actually reading the Bible uh, that much. It seems, and so. I fall, <clears throat> I fall into the side of the Bible's an accurate historical source. It's the best historical source we have to detail the history of this place. It's the only historical source, really, that that gets into the day-to-day details of this place, not just what happened to the kings and the, and the, and the, the prophets, but regular people as well. It gets into a lot of that. And so we would follow the model of Dr. Elot Mazar and her grandfather, Benjamin Mazar, and who really did, though they didn't believe in the theology of the Bible or, or God's ability to, to act uh, in the human sphere in a miraculous way, um, they did use it. And they thought, well, this isn't a fabrication. They, they thought, well, maybe it's overblown here or there, but, but largely it's a historical document. It's the best one, and it just does not make sense to excavate in the land of the Bible without a knowledge of the Bible. Now, there are others that would come and say, well, the Bible was written so late, way after the events that they purport to describe. So how can such ignoramuses uh, 500 years after these events, if you're talking about David's time when people believe it was written, recorded a lot of this 600 years, uh, 608 uh, BC, um, how can we believe them? They're not eyewitnesses. And so let's not really take them as a, as a historical historical source and Andrew Lawler, for his part, I mean, I think he is a I think he is actually a trained archaeologist. I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, but probably not a trained biblical archaeologist, meaning for this place of the land. But he's obviously on the other side. He he and if you read the book, at least the chapters revolving Mazars and and others, you'll see that it's very not favorable towards that view. And instead you know, he talks about how the discoveries are a search to justify the Zionist dream, um, or even you know the, the backers or supporters of their work—they uh, are—they are—they uh, the, are religious, and therefore the findings are going to be biased. At least he implies that um, in in the book. And then, so he's not on that side; he's more on the other side. And one of the leading proponents of this other side of biblical minimal, minimalism, or. David and Solomon not being like the Bible describes is a professor Israel Finkelstein, and this is a very popular uh, man, um, very popular figure in archaeology, um, especially in the in the in the two thousands, and I would say up until the last few years, he's been. Um, just, just absolutely. Well, he's, even now he's absolutely quoted everywhere in in popular articles, news articles about discoveries, and he is the one that really did get uh, Lawler into this. and And I think this is a good uh, a good thing to know going in because we all have our bias, and I understand that <laughs> we all have our biases. I have my biases. It doesn't mean that one of them doesn't mean it's wrong either. But it's it takes it's smart to know going in. What somebody's perspective is, so that you can just strip down the strip down what they describe or or how they describe things, get to the facts, and then make a judge decision. And this is what he writes in acknowledge in the acknowledgements. This is right at the end of the book. The archaeologist of the Israel Antiquities Authority. Uh, with the cooperation of its spokesperson, Yoli Schwartz, were particularly open and helpful, allowing me full access to their ongoing excavations and making time in their packed schedules to answer endless questions. The Tel Aviv University archaeologist Israel Finkelstein, who took me on my initial tour of underground Jerusalem, must shoulder a good deal of responsibility in sparking the idea to pursue the topic." So this is his introduction to this, and I recall in twenty eighteen, uh, Mister Lawler and Professor Finkelstein visiting the dig site of Doctor Elot Mazar, and um, very nice individuals. I'm not going to speak against against just them personally, um, but that's his that's his point of view now for this book. So if you're going to discredit an archaeologist based on the people that are perhaps funding her excavations, or his excavations, or their beliefs uh, in whether the Bible is an accurate historical text or not, you have to see that Lawler has his bias right from the beginning as well, and his bias is on the opposite side. His bias is more towards the Israel Finkelstein side, uh, the Tel Aviv University side, and that's what you get from this article. Uh, Hebrew University bad, Tel Aviv University good. Hebrew University backwards Bible bashers or Bible thumpers, whatever you want to call it, um, and Tel Aviv uh, Haifa University sophisticated, uh, modern, up to date, scientific. These are kind of the, the 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 tones that are given in this article, and I, it is it is worth. Um, reading and and understanding that i i did read a blog i think it's uh dr todd boland's blog and um he said he just had a two-line segment in his blog and he, he he forwards this article on or he mentions this article and he says had he read this article first he wouldn't have read the book um or well, most likely i think he says would not have read the book forgive me if i'm wrong there but it was something to that effect and so the book's probably more uh I would say, less biased than this article. However, this is the article that, you know, these type of articles are what's going to go out to the public. It's what I read. Uh, it's what you might have read. And so what are the claims here? Are they accurate or are they inaccurate? And and what's it trying to accomplish? Again, I'm not going to discredit this this whole book. I haven't read it and I am going to read it and I'm looking forward to reading a lot of it, but when i see how some of the things are reported um based on the excavations um that i that i had a part of and, and looking through the scientific work uh of the archaeologists that are discredited in this this book in some ways um it does make me question you know what how accurate is the rest of it and and um uh, nevertheless i think there are certain limits that you can have to accuracy especially writing about things that happened 150 years ago 100 of 100 years ago uh, and I think he de- from all reports he does do a good job with that. So that's the part I'm looking forward to mostly. He starts off this article talking about the discovery of a toilet. An ancient toilet from around Hezekiah's time, or a little bit after that, that was that was made headlines. We had an article about this as well, and not just that, but the the discovery of the kind of the septic tank underneath, um, what it revealed about the people there, and how this was a toilet. It made big big sensational claims, and it did, or made splashy news everywhere, and it did. And he says it's basically because you know this is Jerusalem, and whatever is found in Jerusalem. From the biblical period does make a lot of headlines, and indeed it does. I'm just going to quote the first page here. It says this: yet despite more than a half a century and a half of study, Jerusalem has largely confounded researchers, entire areas errors within its five thousand year long archaeological record were missing from the chapters documenting its early Judean roots to the latter periods of Persian, Hellenistic, and Arab dominance. Scientists knew little about the health of the city's inhabitants, what they ate, who they traded with, or how they were in, or how they influenced and were influenced by their neighbors. The major culprit for these gaps in knowledge... So he's saying that the reason that we don't know much, and there's big gaps in knowledge of these periods, is the old fixation... By archaeologists on Hebrew scripture at the expense of modernizing their approach to reconstructing the past. Only very recently have they adopted techniques such as radiocarbon dating, long considered standard practice by researchers working in other parts of the world, intense. Uh, intent on finding stories, rem- storied remains of the biblical era, they have been slow to undertake the arduous work of sifting through garbage heaps to gain a fuller picture of every day millennia ago. Now, Jerusalem scholars are racing to catch up with their colleagues by embracing new analytical methods and goals. Now it does he doesn't just date this about what who he's talking to exactly. Um, but if you read the rest of the article, it does it does uh, talk about the ex Tel Aviv University and, and Israel Antiquities Authority, um, excavations that are taking place at the Gavati parking lot just across the road from the ancient city of David. And it talks about um, Dr. Yuval Gadot there excavating this area and how he's using modern scientific uh, you know sophisticated means as well but i don't there there is something wrong with this sentence in this paragraph because it basically says that you know if you've got a fixation with the scriptures then you, you you there's an you're having a trade-off here that problem if you like the scriptures or you think the scriptures are are a historical source that are going to help you understand what you excavate um, there's a trade-off. You're you're not going to be modernizing your approach to reconstructing the past, and uh, he's going to go ta- go on and talk about the mazars and such in this article. And I, I do believe that this is completely false. These modern methods uh, were not uh, limited on the excavations of lot mazar. Uh, he talks about how radiocarbon, long considered standard practice by reaches, what. Uh, Uh, by researchers working in other parts of the world were only very recently adopted well i don't even think that's that true as well i mean there are there are there is a is a uh um increasingly it is being used and and i think that has a lot to do with how radiocarbon is being um uh, calibrated as well and so i i do think that they're not mutually exclusive. You can have a firm understanding of the biblical text and hold that up as being an accurate historical source, innocent until proven guilty, and also combine that with modern scientific uh, archaeological excavation methods. This is something that hasn't uh, that can be done it should be done a modern scholar that leaves the bible to the side and then just uses the modern scientific uh, archaeological techniques uh, is going to be deeply missing out on a lot of information to have a historical source even if you think it's somewhat biased uh, and not use it and just favor the hard science you're going to miss a lot of the picture. And so these aren't mutually exclusive. They both should be used in archaeology. Then he talks about, just skipping a few pages here, he talks about how after the Six-Day War, finally you had Israeli archaeologists, Jewish archaeologists that can start excavating the ancient city. Again, if you're unfamiliar with the geography of Jerusalem, it is a fact that the ancient city of King David the ancient city of King Solomon, the ancient city of King Hezekiah, and the other biblical kings of Judah, um, their city was in East Jerusalem, as it would be described today. It is in the area that was occupied by Jordan uh, up until 1967. And if you're going to find ancient Jerusalem, you have no choice but to excavate in East Jerusalem. And uh, so after the the Six-Day War... Uh, Israelis had control of this area and they put to to excavating. And we talk a bit about this history in the lead article and the personal of the Let the Stone Speak magazine of this current issue. And you'd do well, again, to get your free copy, a uh, free subscription of this magazine, Let the Stone Speak. It's sent out, again, six times per year and it's free. We'll send it to you wherever you are. Of course, you can access it online as well. If you want a free copy or free subscription, write your emails to letters at armstronginstitute.org or you can go to our website armstronginstitute.org and you'll see uh, the magazine there on the front page. Just scroll down and you can get yourself a free subscription for a year and then renew it every single year and we'll never charge you for it. It's a bargain. Um, And we have an article again about this moment when Israel finally had the opportunity to excavate these areas, areas of their forefathers. For the first time, Jewish Israelis had a chance to probe underneath the city, even as they reshaped it above. Unlike Robinson, his most, mostly Christian successes, this new generation of biblical archaeologists was overwhelmingly made up of agnostics and atheists with very little interest in proving the truth of Scripture. But they were also nationalists, fascinated by the Jewish past, and viewed the Bible as a foundational text of their new homeland. Benjamin, new homeland. I don't get that. That's their homeland. <laughs> they were there before. Benjamin Mazar, a famous archaeologist and president of Hebrew University in Jerusalem, was unapologetic about their bias. Biblical archaeology was a part of the Zionist idealism. It's interesting. I mean, if you, if you even talk about um, uh, Finkelstein, he's an ardent Zionist. Uh, he would say the Bible is definitely part of this as well, as part of the Zionist idealism. Uh, I would say, perhaps I'm wrong there, but I would think he would. He writes this, Mazar and his colleagues found luxurious villas, grand avenues, and even the ancient world's most impressive pedestrian overpass, all dating to the era of King Herod the Great and his successors, who ruled Judea under Rome's authority in the century before and during the time of Jesus. So they have massive Second Temple period, as we would describe it, or Herodian period remains there, just south of the Temple Mount, excavated here in 1968 through to 1978, is when those excavations took place. He continues, when an internal civil war turned into an uprising against the empire, Roman legions destroyed Jerusalem in CE 70. These discoveries electrified the Jewish public by bringing to light physical evidence of the time when it was the, a famous and prosperous Jewish city. And then quotes uh, Israeli author Amos Elon, 1971, writing, Israeli archaeologists, professionals, and amateurs are not merely digging for knowledge and objects, but the, for the reassurance of roots. The fines, and then he end quote. The finds also drew the attention of Israeli politicians, who were quick to cite the physical evidence to bolster their controversial claim to the holy city. Now, I don't think any scientist ever uh, debated that King Herod wasn't existed and that Jewish rule was there. You mean you have historical documents? You have Greek writers, Roman writers all talking about this in Massive Works Josephus. Did he just create that? So the fact that this was discovered, um, uh, I mean, you have the massive Temple Mount there. It's very bizarre, uh, (laughs) I think, again, uh, to to say that this was used by the politicians to try and reclaim their roots here, uh, but because we already knew this. He goes on to write, Palestinians decried such excavations as twisting science for political purposes. Favoring the Jewish past at the expense of the city's Canaanite and later Christian and Muslim heritage. Again, if you're talking about this area, there's nothing from the Canaanite period that was discovered there. It's just not there. The city from Canaanite times was lower down, further around the Gihon Spring and the, and the lower city of David. There's nothing there from Canaanite. So is he not are they they can't draw attention to something that's not there that they didn't excavate? But then he says here that uh, favoring the Jewish past at the expense of the city's ancient Canaanite and later Christian and Muslim heritage. Now, I, I think you should visit this site if you read that and think, wow, that's not fair. They don't, they don't draw attention to these other periods, the Christian and Muslim heritage. Now, Benjamin Mazar was actually famous for bringing uh, Muslim leaders to his excavations to see massive Muslim palaces that were constructed there. He's, and they, they're still there. If you go to the Davidson Center Museum, what building is it in? It's in an Umayyad building. This is a Muslim period of Muslim rule over Jerusalem. There was much that he could have gone through, destroyed, gone under to find earlier remains, but he didn't. He didn't. This is somebody that, he, that he's citing and claiming, I th- what was that quote uh, before about him? Uh, talking about Benjamin Mazar. Uh, I think I have it somewhere here. Yes, that the biblical archaeology was part of Zionist idealism. That might have been true, and it is true, but that's not to say that those other periods were not um, excavated properly and preserved properly as well. Go there. Visit the site. Most of the site of the Davidson Center Archaeological Park and even on the other side of the wall there, just below the Al-Aqsa Mosque, um, you've got massive Umayyad buildings that remain that could have that he could have gone through if he only cared about Jewish uh, history on the site. But that's just not true. And he was renowned for this at the time. We have an article written by Chris Eames on the website, armstronginstitute.org, and I'll put a link to that, where you can read about how Professor Mazar of Hebrew University took pains to bring the Arab leaders to this location so that they could see their heritage there as well. Uh, Let's just go on now. It says this. Meanwhile, archaeologists in Europe and North America were embracing new research methods and technological advances Rather than focusing on unearthing monumental buildings, museum-quality artifacts, and evidence of long-dead kings, these excavators sought to know more about how ordinary people lived, what trade routes tied disparate peoples together, and what shifts in material culture revealed about societal societal changes. Using new techniques, researchers could be far more precise in dating artifacts, by, and by sifting carefully through the dirt, they could produce samples that casts light on diet, disease, uh, uh, diet, disease, commerce, and ritual. Then he writes this, Researchers in Jerusalem remain deeply conservative in their approach to studying the past. However, this continued, the continued quest to find the city conquered by the Bible's King David and glorified by his son King Solomon after 1000 BCE, still missing after more than a century of digging, took precedence over questions about diet and disease even those archaeological techniques in wide use elsewhere met with suspicion carbon 14 for example instance was dismissed out of hand by researchers who contended that its margin for error allowed one to argue that any age that the age of any given find was whatever it wanted to be and so this is again it's saying that those people that would you know use the bible and that they were conservative in their approach, meaning use the historical text in your to discern and and discover and interpret uh, what's discovered. That they did it that way, and then they didn't care about what the everyday people did or ate or trade or things like that. And again, that's just false. Read a final report. Read a final report of of Dr. Elot Mazar. I have I have a few of them here. Um, the early ones about the first one about the city of David. You have one. Uh, it's one big thick volume and it's got several chapters on what people ate, the trade, uh, what we all the information. And in terms of sifting, I think he, he he takes a shot about, you know where it says here, using new techniques, researchers could be far more precise in dating artifacts. And by sifting carefully through the dirt, they could, et cetera. Now, if you want to talk about who was sifting through the dirt, I could be wrong, but she if she wasn't the first, she might have been the second, person to actually wet sift on location at an excavation site the excavations at the summit of the city of david by dr Elot mazar before all these other excavations started wet sifting their material she did it on site she said well, this material is just too important for any trace of information to be lost so we're going to wet sift it all and from that you discover all the different botanicals that were there, the fish bones, you do flotation to try and see what, what, what they, what vegetation was there. Um, all of that was done. All of that was done back in 2006. And so again, I don't know both. Again, let's go for science. Science doesn't put the Bible away and just focus on, uh, just focus on, you know, these modern techniques. It brings it together, the modern techniques in the context of a historical source they should go together. The most dramatic implication, uh, it talks about Finkelstein a little bit, and then it says this claim that the Finkelstein's low chronology claim that King everything that we've dated to King Solomon's time is actually from about hundred years later. That's his major major theory that has this, this hundred years has been shrinking uh, quite a lot over the next 15 uh, 15 or 20 years since this came out. This claim infuriated many of the more traditional excavators, including Mazar's granddaughter, the late Dr. Elat Mazar. Like Robinson, uh, in the nineteenth. 19- like Robinson in the 1830s she set out to counter what she saw as a kind of heresy now this is interesting because Dr. Mazar had her theory I think of King David's palace and where it should be before Finkelstein actually proposed his low chronology if you go back I think it's 95, 96 Dr. Mazar was talking about this with her grandfather even a few years before that so it really had nothing to do with uh, Finkelstein's new theory of low chronology they came to these things separately it wasn't the motivation to go ahead and find king david's palace again uh, that's that's flawed that's that's wrong um i'm sure it did infuriate her as it did most others that you just move in the goalposts finkelstein came along and he moved the goalposts and said everything has that has been dated to king solomon's time it's not it's from a hundred years later that was just an amazing um change uh, that was put out there, hypothesis that was put out there, and there were a lot that were infuriated by it. And even Finkelstein has brought his dating back towards the more traditional dating since he first uh, made that made that claim. And that's what science can do. I mean, and that's what's the beauty of, of these hard sciences, sciences, as he's talking about. There are a lot of more modern techniques that we can see and use and are being used in Jerusalem elsewhere, Hebrew University, Tel Aviv University, and they help get at the truth. They really do. And so these, these are wonderful things. And as you get more of these details and modern methods become more precise, uh, it actually is getting closer towards the biblical side version of the history. And we're, not, we're not afraid of, I think, if you talk to any biblical archaeologist or archaeologist that believes in the authenticity of the Bible the accuracy historical accuracy of the bible he's uh he's he he wants more modern methods being used moving towards the end of the article it says this With Mazar's passing, Hebrew University's Yosef Garfinkel is taking up her biblical standard. Six weeks before Mazar's death, she called him to her bedside and asked him to continue her excavations in the city of David National Park, where she found the putative palace. He remains unconvinced that she clinched her case, but hopes to find the necessary evidence by restarting the dig in the near future. And so it's it, this is the way he concludes this article. Again, he talks about how Dr. Mazar has died, and Professor Garfinkel of Hebrew University is going to take over some of her excavations. However, to say that he hopes to find the necessary evidence uh, that it's a palace—that's not true. He hopes to find what he finds, and uh, you can talk to him, and and you can understand that he'll hope to find what he finds. And if it is evidence, the palace, great. Uh, if not, I, I'm sure he'll he'll let that 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 let the stone speak in that way. Uh, continuing uh, well i'll just skip a paragraph cuz i'm running out of time it says this the resurgence of what finkelstein says as a traditional sees as a traditional form of biblical archaeology leaves him troubled he wants to put jerusalem in the wider context of the fluid ancient middle east and set aside the fixation on proving the existence of this or that monarch quote But the wave of conservative scholarship, quoting Finkelstein now, is becoming stronger and stronger. It's not just Eilat Mazar and Yossi Garfinkel. It's quite depressing. We're losing the battle. We're losing the battle, is what Finkelstein says. And then Lawler writes, To combat this trend of conservative scholarship, using the Bible and archaeology discoveries, how they relate to the Bible, discussing that, to combat this trend of conservative scholarship, what do we need to do? Finkelstein launched a new archaeology program at the University of Haifa last fall that will emphasize cutting-edge science, international collaboration, and museum studies with its own deep-pocketed supporters. So I don't understand this. To combat a trend of conservative scholarship or biblical archaeology, of using the Bible in archaeology, how do you combat it? Cutting-edge science, international collaboration, museum studies with their own... I mean, this is bizarre. It's bizarre. You're going to combat the the archaeology of esteemed Israeli scientists of Hebrew University by using the same cutting-edge technologies, international collaboration that Hebrew University uses. What do you think is going on at Hebrew University? just their backwoods folks head in the Bible go out to the site this proves the Bible go down look at the brand new facility in Hebrew University the brand new labs where they're doing all types of of cutting edge scientific <laughs> scientific work how are you going to combat conservative scholarship or biblical archaeology with science with greater science or more cutting edge science I mean you don't combat it that way I mean, it is what it is. I mean, if you're going to use cutting-edge science in these archaeological sites in Jerusalem, fantastic, great. The conservative school wants that. It's not like evidence is being hidden. Bring to bear all your resources. As an archaeologist or historian, as Finkelstein claims, he's more of a historian, bring your resources to bear. To recreate the past in the most accurate sense possible. Bring your cutting-edge technology. And then look at what the evidence says. And what does the evidence produce? And then bring your historical document. Do does it, does it fall in line with the text or not? Can you use a historical source in biblical archaeology, the Bible? Are you allowed to do that? Of course, you should do that. You should do that. Just as you would use a classical historian's classical historian to excavate a classical site, to relate your findings, using cutting-edge scientific technologies to relate those findings to history, you use a historical source. But the problem is, when the Bible is that historical source, then people get upset. Okay, I think that's all I'm going to have time for on today's program. I'll leave a a link for this article in the show notes. It's called Jerusalem Archaeology Modernizes But Runs Into Ancient Problems by uh, Mr. Andrew Lawler. If you want to send some feedback to this program or this show, uh, I do hope that you do that. You can write your emails to letters at Armstrong. Uh, institute.org, letters@ArmstrongInstitute.org. Please do go ahead and request our magazine, or or even sign up for our daily email, or our, our uh, brief email that comes out whenever we have new content. Uh, you'll really want to just read through these a ad- couple articles that we put out in the next edition of Let the Stone Speak. Um, we're going to post them online and perhaps I can put a link to to them as they go online here the next day or so in the show notes of today's program so that you can be ready for this dramatic discovery that's going to, I assume, is going to be presented to the public this Thursday uh, and Friday probably if you're here in Israel, Thursday night. Thank you very much for listening in this week. We'll give you another program next week of Let the Stones Speak. I'm Brent Nucktegal, your host here in Jerusalem. Have a wonderful week.